0: <laughs> I'm very
1: relaxed, as you can tell. I'm stretching. G'day, guys! Welcome to another episode of the ISS podcast. Uh, this one is a bit of a special one, noting that what's going on in the news with the Raw Commission, we decided to get uh, some out-of-the-wire gunfighters together to go over the terms of reference what we think this is going to take about 90 minutes normal podcast episode and and the people that don't have video and i just listened to this through uh one of the podcast um audio apps uh in the room th- this is a group of of people from most operations that the australian army served in in the last uh 30 years um we've got marshal officer a section commander and a uh, fbe veteran uh, from one hour um, Glenn Azar, six RR, mate?
2: Uh, sorry, it started out at eight, nine, but my specialty then, uh, I became a medic, so aviation, medicine, uh, Black Hawk, Iroquois evacuations through Bougainville and Timor for me. Uh,
1: going down, we've got uh, Kieran Tui, Um Now he's a open-arm peer support advisor. What's your back, what's your background, bro? Uh,
3: combat engineers and then went into a specialised drafting role. Uh,
1: we've got uh, Hawks from HR with Hawks, Simon Hawken, uh, Mate, uh, Rwanda vet uh, and a few others. Uh, Rwanda and uh, East Timor, mate. Nice. Uh, Justin Huggett uh, went over with uh, Op Herrick with the Brits, Australian section uh, sergeant, left as a sergeant, um, medal of gallantry recipient. And uh, going across, we got Willie. G'day, mate. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, And we've got Paul Warren down from MRTF fucking Two. I think that was our trip, wasn't it, Paul? Yes, mate, that's it.
4: Yeah, MRTF Two.
1: Nice. right? let's get straight into it. So we've got a couple of questions here and these guys are are, are fairly – we're going from involved in the space to just involved in mental health to just uh, really caring about making the best sort of people that we can. Um, we'll go through these questions, how it's going to roll. We're going to ask uh, about five or six questions. We're going to send it to one person. And then we'll open it up to the floor for comment. And then at the end, if there's time, um, we'll go to a Chinese parliament. All right, guys. So the first question uh, I just wanted to ask, reading the terms of reference uh, and how they are currently seen, do you see any gaps in the Royal Commission and, and what it's looking into? Uh, Hawks, you got any questions, mate?
5: Look, mate, I had a, a read through today and um, I was looking at Bravo uh, 4 where they're talking about the availability and accessibility to um, health and well-being services. Just from my experience and the era that I was sort of in, uh, my question, if they're going to look into it, is what soldiers' knowledge of the services that were available to them at that time? Uh, I do remember that, yeah, you know, there was very little known about uh, what services you could access or what you could, um, what paths you could go down, and I think that was simply because of the hangover from uh, that peacetime era that this was all a new thing. So if somebody did have issues, there was very little uh, knowledge of what you could do, where you could go, where you could seek assistance, and those types of things as well. And I think they've sort of um, brushed over that area. They're looking at. Uh, the availability and accessibility and what it is for people today. But uh, I think that's something they should look at as well from history is, you know, what was the knowledge? Was there really actually anything uh, thought about or available to people during those earlier periods?
1: Yeah, I think um, looking at the terms, um, because they've got to be so broad, they've got to cover everyone, hey, from right through and look at the whole problem um itself. Hugo, mate, you got anything to amplify on that?
6: Yeah, I obviously everything that I say is only my opinion, of course. And it's not that I'm gonna sit here and disagree with people because I I'm an argumentative prick. But when the terms of reference come out, what I did is I sat down and I wrote out the 15 things that pissed me off the most. So I went through, you know, how slow the claim system is, you know, the discrepancies between entitlements when you get separated from the army between officers and diggers. Paul and be able to tell you about his entitlements medically and and if quirky was here he'd be able to tell you the two different entitlements because of rank so I wrote 15 things down and I went back to the terms of reference and I found a point in those terms of reference that would cover off every sort of annoying thing that I had written on that list so for me I think the terms of reference are pretty good and what we need to do is we need to make sure that you know as you, know, as you said before, outside the wire gunfighters, we're very good at thinking outside the square and thinking laterally, and that's what we've got to do with these terms of reference. And If I can just go to Hawko's point about not knowing you know, what services are available, I would go straight to the terms of reference and look at ADF culture. I would stick that under ADF culture, a culture of not front loading your soldiers with the correct information on what services are out there. So if we can think broadly... And we can think laterally and, and use these terms of reference to our own advantage. I think I don't think there's going to be too many things we can't cover off on. You know, like if, and what I did even further, I took the terms of references and I broke them down into three parts. I broke them down into recruiting and pre-service, and then I broke them down into your actual service, as in I'm finished recruiting or I've got through the door recruiting to the, my discharge date, and then I broke it down to post-service life. So, I think there's enough there. I was once again, only my opinion. I think there's enough there to cover just about everything. And it's there's a big thing in their terms of reference. I, I can't remember what one it is, but it talks about looking in um, to all facets or all specifics of the Department of Defense, DVA, and other government organizations. So, we can look at other things like ComSuper. Um, you can look at government organizations like the, the old VBCS, now Open Arms as well. So, we can look at everything in a whole scope and look at improving that way. So, you know, once again, I said just my opinion, but I I think there's enough there that we can cover off if we, if we think well enough about it.
1: No, great answer, mate. Uh, I open it up to the floor. Does anyone, uh, everyone agrees with Hoyo on that one or?
5: I, I do. I agree with what he's saying. Um, just me reading it through here, and I, I did the same sort of thing, basically, just read through it as, but I tried to look at it the perspective of, um, after looking at the people that are going to be doing it, and looking at it from not having a knowledge of how defence works, hence why I brought that point up. But you make a valid point there, mate, it is, the terms of reference do uh, delve deeply into most aspects, and that was really just the only one that I sort of jumped out that um, I didn't think it covered, but you're probably well right that um, when you look at it in the broad space, it, it probably will come out in that as well anyway. But I would tend to agree, it's not a bad document.
1: I just hope that um, some the, 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 what we've covered in the terms of reference and, and what we're going to do is, and people are going to, if it's going to be received on the other side of it, so the mums and the partners of people that have passed away, the people that think they've got skin in the game because they're emotionally invested in this, um, but perhaps don't have the actual understanding of the situation or what their sons have gone through and or, you know, partners and, and whatever has happened. I'm just interested to see um, if specifically, I don't I don't know if I saw toxic like a drug and alcohol misuse um, and some of the other systemic problems that might be happening uh, in defence and whether that's covered or not so be interesting to see
6: i think you'll find mate that once again if you want to look broad bush and open their marks up impact of culture within the adf and you know it's a you know not a real big topic that we talked about but drinking and alcohol culture was huge you know we all used to just go and write yourself off at a boozer and sleep in your swag down there and smash the place up and fix it no one really said anything. So I think that little piece where it says the impact of culture, well, then the culture now was probably different to what it was 10 years ago when we were all flapping around, you know, punching on in town and doing everything like that. So this commission has the, the power to look backwards. So we can look backwards to how the culture was and the way that culture affected people going forward. So, you know, as I said, if we're smart about it, that, you know, and those just little sentences and little, you know, sub-paragraphs and sub-headings in there, we can make them work for ourselves, providing we want to get in and ask the right questions.
7: Yeah, I think it was probably a bit of a challenge for the guys writing this to, to put something on paper that was broad enough to cover all the issues that they wanted to cover, but also narrow enough points that they were hitting on all the big ticket items that the veteran community were so vocal about seeing in the terms of reference. So my personal opinion is when I read it, I was glad that it was pretty broad brush. It was good to see that they are really trying to cover all bases, like Hugo said, before service, during service, and after service. And they've also tried to hit on some pretty big key points. Like Hugo said, again, uh, alcohol and drug abuse is a big one. ADF culture is another big one that you know, the veteran community, especially the young veteran community now, is sort of clamouring about having an investigation done into these very specific things. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with it, I think.
4: In reference to what Hugo said earlier, like, I think they do need to look at it. Sometimes they, you know, do try to apply this, you know, one-size-fits-all approach. Um, But really when it came to us, and, and Koko will testify to this, they you know, he was entitled to a university education, but because I was a digger, even though I'd lost a limb, I wasn't. Um, and that's probably ADF culture as well. They, you know, they look after people that are more senior rank and not really take into account uh, the individual's future needs once they leave the fence.
1: Is that a hangover from from the old days? I mean, is this a, you know, we all, everyone knows the story of the monkeys in a cage in the army and we, that's the way we've been doing things. So that's why it's always been, we don't really know why, but that's why it's always been done. Is that just a cultural class, a class issue from, you know, fifteen hundred years ago where diggers were cannon fodder and the officers were the, the people that, you know, controlled the battle, you know, the gentleman people that controlled the battle? And is that just a residual or are we I mean, I think it's I think it's wrong that different people should be given different skill sets when they when they move out, right?
8: I think Max it's one of those things like you said it's just the all, it's just how it's always been done <clears throat> and there's so much you see in defense everything from you know section attack tactics through to this no this is just the way we do it it doesn't matter if there's a better way this is the way we do it and those who stick their head up trying to push a different way to do it End up getting, you know, hammered back down. And a lot of those good guys who would have instilled something different end up pulling the pin and saying, get stuffed. I think one of the big things is, you know, to whether it may be some element of hangover, but also to look back and go, well, it doesn't have to be the way we do it. It's just the way we do it. No,
1: great point, mate. Um, It'd be interesting to see what sort of impact this is going to have and, sp- and going back to the culture piece that we were talking about, is it is it the Army's fault in, in this? We're talking about people who are committing su- We're talking about suicides in defence um, and how we segregate those suicides from as a result of operational service or what about a 19-year-old kid that's just been in the Army for six months? Is that defence's cultural problem? Um, did he, and, and, and this is half some of, some of the problems that have come up The kids have committed suicide within six months to a year of being in service. Is that army's cultural problem? Is that army's fault or is that society? And and, and it's more, um, probably to you, Glenn can probably speak to this is that, I mean, I think it's a Western epidemic, the, the poor mental health, the lack of, um, even, uh, what do they call it, like a rite of passage as adults or, or people teaching people how to act and how to be and how to cope with things?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, at the, currently, I, I think in Western society, we can clearly see a lack of resilience uh, and so on. Like that's, I think COVID certainly highlighted where people sit on those sort of fronts. But, you know, I don't believe you can blame the military on a cultural issue in such an early stage. Uh, I think obviously there's been some issue going on ongoing that's brought them to that point. I wouldn't imagine it's, you know, being called out into the hallway with your sheets over your shoulder. If they still do that, I don't imagine that's what we can say is is causing the problem for these young people. So that's that's an, a, a totally different sort of stat from the point of view of mental health in general. Yes, uh, the longer we spend in, the more that we see. Obviously, uh, the more that we have to deal with and we do have a culture and I actually work heavily in the construction space who interestingly have very high stats as well in the trade space. Um, You know, depending on what stats you read, actually higher than what military veteran suicide is. So, um, I think they're just both tough alpha male or female. It's an alpha sort of environment that creates us not wanting to talk about stuff. We've all been through, I'm 49, so I've been through particularly when I was in the malingering, if you ever went and spoke to anyone about anything, particularly uh, mental injuries, obviously, people just didn't talk about that stuff. That's probably a little bit more talked about in the general civilian space now. I'm working a lot in uh, 11 to 17-year-olds, youth development, so on. I find a distinct lack of resilience in these young people, and a lot of it comes down from the parents and society. So, of course, if they get put into an environment that's pretty tough, like the military, it could be that that straw that breaks a camel's back, but I don't think we can blame the military for it. In my in my opinion,
8: somewhat in my opinion, um, <clears throat> I think we can blame uh, some of what I've seen because the last eighteen months of my career, uh, because I was downgraded to J like a million with my tumor, um, I put a lot of weight on a lot of the um, a lot of the culture I saw within my section of broken guys down to poor recruitment. And that's one of the big cultural things. I'm like,
6: this guy, Willie, got it.
8: This guy should never have stepped foot into the infantry. Um, There was guys, I'm like, you're a lovely guy. I get along with you. But what the fuck are you doing at this unit that's an alpha male workplace? And that's the way it has to be for warrior culture. If you want these guys to go over the top of a trench and potentially just get red misted. The, the culture that you know the army want to have on social media can't be the same culture that we fight with. It just can't be. And all these guys, not all of them, but a few really lovely guys, it came down to you should not have been recruited. And one of the guys we um, ended up um, administratively separating from defense um, under my command at the time, he was deemed unsuitable at DFR by the psychologist unsuitable The secos got him a psych test at kapuka and was deemed unsuitable the exact same happened from the secos at singo but through all three things until he got into the 7th battalion he was pushed through and whether you liked him or not you have to feel a bit sorry for this bloke has been absolutely just funneled pushed through of something that day one he was said this guy shouldn't be in the job um and you know the culture at DFR, and I know that there is a monetary incentive then to push people in. Uh, it just doesn't fit the product that comes out at the end, and it may come out, you know, six months in, or it could come out six years into your career.
6: If that's that's the case, and I couldn't agree with you more, mate. You've got to point the finger at defence in a certain way. So someone, and I, and I can vouch for this. So I spent two years as an instructor at Singleton. You know, ten years after or eleven years after I was a trainee myself. You. You farted too loud you were going to get back-squatted when I first joined. Fast forward two years, mate. In in two years as an instructor, I back-squatted one bloke and it took a near miracle to do it. And every time I went to the SI down there to back-squat someone, that guy not being at the right standard was my fault. I was the one letting him down by not giving him correct instruction. You know, I'm like, you can't jam a square peg into a round hole. These – I think recruiting – and the the standards of people getting let through recruiting, there is a huge percentage of that transferring over to mental health problems and suicide. I'll give you an exact example right now. Here in Townsville right now, there is over a dozen soldiers, if you want to call them soldiers, without being disrespectful to them, that are medically downgraded for mental health injuries because they've failed their BFA. Now, how does that fit the mental resilience or the mental toughness of someone who's at the end of the day, regardless of your call, you're a rifleman first, you fail a BFA and you end up with a mental health injury and you're medically downgraded. So I I, I think the recruiting is the start point for this. And you've got to do this big jump from recruiting to the CDF and go, what are the standards that we are accepting to recruit into the ADF? You know, you go back 20 years and the, the fence around the ADF was 10 foot high and you couldn't, the civilian population couldn't look in to see what's going on. A weak spineless ADF headquarters and, and these PC generals lowered the fence to get everyone to look in. And all of a sudden, training practices are, you know, bastardization, and you've been, you know, you can't treat people like that. Fair enough. Look where we are now. We've got, you know, people crying foul over, you know, I had to throw a girl to the curb about a month and a half ago. She wanted me to represent her in a DBA claims because she was being bullied. She didn't realise I knew a CO. I rang a CO and she was a piece of shit that couldn't turn up to work on time. So I rang her and said, there's a difference between bullying and being a piece of shit that can't turn up to work on time. So there, as Glenn said, complete lack of resilience and it starts at recruiting. And yeah, you know, I couldn't agree with you both more. Yeah.
5: Oh, oh, oh. On that, on that, sorry, on that recruiting point there, I think uh, it, we're dead right. It's become a commercialised business now, and you're right. There's incentives, but I also think what they're doing is is we're trying to apply public service standards to uh, uniform members. So dropping out of government, and you know, it's the Department of Defence, and whether it's you know where it's coming from, it's it's applying those standards that we hold our public servants to to a uniform member, and as we're talking about, gunfighters, whatever it may be. So having that recruiting process incentivized by money and also looking at those standards that you hold the public service to, and that's what you're accepting as a person to work within the Defence Force, is an issue as well. Whereas in the past, I think, in and uh, probably our era, uh, you went to the recruiting office and there was a uh, a, an army sergeant, a RAF sergeant, and a Navy, whatever they have as a sergeant, and they were the first person you spoke to and you spent most of your time talking to them and you might see a doctor or a psych or something, but if they didn't like you, you were just told, no, go, go somewhere else. Whereas I think now it's uh, get people in the door, get them through some testing, uh, get the tick in the box, move them on, but applying those standards of a public servant, not the standards of a soldier, as a soldier would apply to a person. So I think, you know, recruiting is uh, a, a big issue for defence. We've, we've gone so far backwards with that, uh, it, it'll be a struggle to bring it back up again to, to getting people with resilience. And it's not that uh, people aren't so much, it's just that we're accepting those that probably aren't suitable. Whereas if we looked harder and worked harder, we'd get the, you know, the higher quality people in any of the services. So I would agree 100% with that, with recruiting. I think it's, it's the first point that needs to be seriously looked at.
4: So I think that's got to do with diversity targets as well. We've somehow allowed the PC world to come in and, and take over, you know, the unusual circumstances that we've all found ourselves in on operations or in service. Um, and I just came out of a HR department with defence industry. And, you know, diversity can sometimes override capability. You want to achieve all these diversity targets and then you lose your capability. And I think Defence has gone the same way.
3: Yeah, a couple of points. I think, Jensen, I agree with uh, everything you're saying at the moment. Um, informed consent is one aspect of joining the military. So I remember um, stuffing up and hating the army. I think I scratched FTA into a tree of water somewhere. Anyway, I thought I was funny and cool and they said, you joined the army, the army didn't join you. I said, yeah, but I didn't know I was signing up for. And then they say, yes, you did. I'm like, I actually didn't. I was was 18. I was in a honeymoon period. And the literature is pretty clear that when we're in a honeymoon period per se, we're wearing rose-coloured lenses. And so the background noise doesn't come in. You're just thinking about what you think you want to do. The other point is a philosophical one Nowhere in us as young men growing up in society, if you had a list and it said, here's a list of things that we've given you, tick the ones that a warrior does. So fights war, tick. Talks about feeling sad, lonely and depressed. No, I won't tick that one. In the definition of warrior, nowhere in there does it say the person can articulate a certain way when they need to. And I'm not saying that they should either because there's also two parts in this argument. The old guard, I'll just use that term, and they're worried about capability. The new guard is really pushing sensitivity. I don't think, and and I'd love, I think most of you'll agree with what I'm going to say, that when Hago was talking about the ten foot, ten metre fence that no one could look in at, our warfighting capability behind that fence was pretty friggin' high, but we do know we had guys jumping out of the windows at Kapuka taking their lives. Because it was a really really intense time so i don't know what the answer is to that but i sure know that capability has gone down because sensitivities come up and because sensitivities come up people are given a space a safe space sorry if i triggered anyone to talk about what they think they need to talk about and in some respects jumping or falling off the horse the best therapy let's use that word we have to grow resilience, because the other term that keeps coming up is resilience, resilience is a fluid faculty. It comes and goes, it ebbs and flows, and you'll be resilient in one area, like war fighting, and then you get out in Civvy Street and you've got zero out of ten. Resilience changes, ebbs and flows. So there are so many dynamic factors in this. I think culturally, informed consent, say, Kieran, this is what we do to your brain when you join. This is how it works. This is what you're going to become a part of. Let the person know clearly so they're nodding. And will that stop it? No, but I think it might help it. Um, and then the other factors that everyone else has talked about. Capability, when Hugo was talking about back in the day, sharpest spear you could find. But I dare say what I see now, uh, peer mentoring veterans from Vietnam, actually I've got a World War II vet who I uh, peer work with, right up into contemporary vets is the guys who went in and definitely should have gone frontline warrior soldiers but in there and you probably solicit Singo hugo good soldier broke his leg busted his whole dream from when he was five years old gone down the gurgler now who am i and now there's this battle with injury that won't let him continue as a warrior but also the identity, which he wanted since he was a young fella, is gone. And now the guy doesn't know what he's doing. And the answer to that, I don't know.
0: Can I chime in for two seconds, Max? Uh, boys, they're all they're all wicked points, absolutely. I think the majority of what we just went through, um, to round it back to, to Max's original question, we could probably make submissions on those based on the culture piece or one of the terms of reference that exist at the moment. So everything that's just been said could become a, a submission based on one of the terms of reference. But to pull it back to if there is any gaps in that terms of reference, the one thing that I can't see in there anyway, anywhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is impact of media. Um, and that, I, I don't know how it's going to get put uh, or, or raised in this, but I'd love to get other people's opinions. Like, I I am a firm believer that identity and purpose are, are fundamental to human mental health, uh, and the military gives us that. Now, when we leave, and or even when you're still in, and the media is bombarding everyone with this concept that the government's dropped us like a bag of shit um the the country doesn't care about anyone anymore um everyone that went to war is a war criminal that is directly impacting people in the identity and purpose space if you cannot be proud of your military service you're going to have mental health decline in uh, in, in later life so I'd love to hear people's opinions. Is it something that should have been? I mean, it's too late now, but is it something that should have been brought up in the terms of reference? Is the impact of media uh, and and the changing narrative on is if it's good or bad to be, or to be an Australian defence member, is that an impact on suicide and, and mental health decline?
6: Uh, sorry, Adrian, if you go down to Point Golf, and once again, we've got to think laterally and outside of the square here, and it's talking about any systematic issues in the nature of defence members and veterans engagement with the Department of Defence. So that's talking about any systematic issues. So engagement with the media, the media and their portrayal of soldiers, the media and their portrayal of veterans. If it's negative, if it's good, if it's having a negative impact on mental health, it is a systematic issue in the nature of a defence member and their engagement with the defence department. So it was one of the things that was written down in my fifteen points, mate. And it took me about ten or fifteen minutes to find something to go with it. I've got me folder over here, but I—that was the. There's a couple other you could go. You could go back to the culture, but I was looking for something more specific, and I went to that. I just keep going back to this thing: systematic issues, and it's a, it's a sexy word like security. I think if we fo- focus and we try and use these systematic issues and we try and make those little sentences and those sub-paragraphs work for us, there's not much we're not going to be able to point the finger at. So once again, just my thoughts. I'm happy to hear any different, or if, there's, if people have looked through and found something better, then I'm happy to listen.
5: I think no, that's, that's good, mate. I think, I think, mate. I think you're right, because that point that you brought up, you know, I don't know how many times I hear this, and, and not being an Afghan vet at all, um, people will say to me often, you know these Afghan vets. You know they've got up to a lot of mischief over there, and you, you 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 correct them, and you say, "Look, you're tarring a large group of people with a very tiny brush." And um, so, yeah, I think you're right. That is an issue. That media part of it, but I do. I think what Haga is saying there, it does cover off on it because it's yeah, you know, that's part of defence. They throw that out there. They allow it to get out there, um, and yeah, it, it is having it would be having a big impact on probably even you guys. You know, because there's this that perception that. All Afghan vets, in some cases, are, are bad people. They've done the wrong things, which is definitely untrue. But, uh,
8: yeah, I think that would have a massive impact on some, some younger minds. I think there's just as much of a large impact, um, not only from, you know, your, your typical media outlets, but even from, well, I'll put the term toxic veterans, as far as, you know, people on Facebook and Instagram, whatever, you know, really bashing where they served. Oh, DVA won't help me do this and that. And it sort of breeds in, well, if he can't get help, I can't get help, therefore there's nothing. Um, And like it or not, most of the people yelling and screaming online probably um, aren't or shouldn't be entitled to some of it anyway Um, because I know myself, you know, I've had fairly smooth sailing with DVA as long as I've stayed on top of it, but it seems that there's a million other blokes out there and men and women who are just so toxic to our own community that it's making it really bad like me as a 25 year old if I see channel 9 or channel 7 or whoever bashing vets I'm like oh yeah go fuck yourself and I think nothing more of it because you're just some cuck but if I see someone who served in uniform who signed that dotted line then carrying on about anything um, as far as how shit the system is, how shit people are in it, that, to me, has far more of an impact um, and not bringing up legitimate logical points that improve anything other than really their own financial um, well-being. There's a, uh,
3: there's a term, uh, sorry, a, a term I coined called enabled entitlement and it, I it's it's also it happens without conscious awareness if that makes sense like a lot of people when we're serving don't know that we're sort of being enabled to act a certain way without being aware that that's what's actually happening and so the the focus is capability which is great but then when they get and so their ability to go to a, a war zone people want to go no like most people I knew anyway wanted to go put them on civvy street and now their capabilities at a zero. And so everything was catered for when you're in the military, your uniforms there, everything's there, it's all done. for your food's on base, your medical's on base. And then they get out and they're like, oh, I've got to drive 15 minutes or catch public transport to do groceries now. It's like, yeah, welcome to the real world. And so it's a shock and a change for that person. And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's what we seem to observe anyway. And, um, the other mistake, to go to Adrian's point about the media, um, look what happens to rugby league teams if uh, a player has been alleged of some foul activity. The, the coach and the team stand in front of the camera and they go, we're going we're gonna to stand behind Kieran and support him through this rough patch. And they're like, wow, that's pretty impressive. Now let's watch a soldier who is done for some sort of foul act. Boom, on the street. And the the boss comes out in the news and goes, we got rid of that scumbag, guys. Why? They're playing footy and they got more support. He went to war zones and gets none. He fought for what he thought or she thought was liberty and justice for people in their country and supporting them, yet isn't afforded the same justice when they return home. Now, the Wallabies keep losing. Look at the coach, not the players. Army isn't performing. Look at the players, not the coach. Uh, I just think that Army tries, I'm using Army, tries to say we'll, we'll copy what society, will be like society, the same standards and levels and values. You can't. You're in the business of war. You're the only organisation in the business of war. So what would be good is if a military leader stood in front of the cameras and went, yeah, yeah I hear what you're saying, Channel 7, 10 and ABC, but we're war fighters." We're not in HR or truck driving, but we do take measures to look after our people. But it's different.
6: Yeah, you'd, you'd need it. The ADF, like, you'd need a spine to stand in front of the, the camera and do that. And I'm yet to see a, you know, look at look at the minute this shit with the Paul come about, you know, Campbell would have been gone. If my, if as a section commander or a platoon sergeant, my diggers had a played up like that, I'd have been battalion, orderly sergeant, day on and day off for six months. You know, so you're 100% right, Kieran, that's, you know, your two points, made of the football analogy and that, mate, you hit 100% hit the nail on the head. The only people, you get a digger that gets in trouble, the only bloke that's going to stand in front of him is his section commander because he's probably defended him in front of the CO, and that's it. Everyone else, and if you look, go all the way back, I done my subject one for corporal, and I got pinked for my attitude doing service discipline law because in a whole class full of, you know, 30 or 40 people and you're doing your scenarios on on a soldier that's marked up, 99% of them are sitting there working out how they can charge the bloke and I'm sitting down there in the back trying to work out how I can get him off. And that that was my mentality. I'm not there to charge my diggers. If you've got pissed and you, you know, if you're a, a, a chronic fuck up, then yes, I'm going to throw the book at you. Or if you're a good soldier and you made a mistake, you better believe I'm going to read between the lines and have you walking out of there with no charge on you. But that's the problem. You look at the ADF culture and the junior NCO culture, it's drilled into them. Here's these soldiers. If they fuck up, you step on their neck and don't get off until their eyes pop out and they're blue. Well, that's wrong. We should be standing up for them, whether it's, an, a, you know, a, a discipline issue, whether they've got a mental health issue, whether it's a colossal stuff up. It just seems to be thrown to the wolves. He's gone. You know, that's what it's all about. The boys from 1RL like Max and Adrian will probably be able to touch on it more than me about... The guys that got all from one hour that all got booted over a, a bit of a scandal there. I'm not going to. I don't know whether I'm allowed to say out loud what happened, but that was you know the C O at, at the time then just looking to cover his ass and throw people out the door. And from all accounts, a good good group of blokes may have slightly stepped off the off the track. But is it warranted that you ruin their life and throw them out of the army over you uh, know over a situation that you know was a politically correct decision at the highest level? Anyhow, that we all predicted what would happen. No, nah, they're just thrown to the wolves, mate. And and as you said, as, you know, Glenn's talking about and everyone else, then you start having these mental health issues and losing an identity after a broken leg and getting out. And it's a, it just snowballs into a terrible situation. So, yeah, I, I,
4: great comments, Kieran. I couldn't agree with you more, mate. And and, uh, I go, I go, and and the best example of how they're getting this wrong and not even understanding who's injured, who needs support, who's doing the right thing, who's doing the wrong thing, uh, is the Invictus Games system <laughs> going to the first one in 2014? Captaining the second one in 2016, I I quit after that. There's people that really could have had their their welfare um, and their you know confidence grown by things like that, and the hierarchy send us a whole heap of clusterfuck and it embarrassed us. That that is just one example of the decision makers not even knowing who their people are and who, who should be supported and, and looked after.
8: And uh, I think to touch on how that, in my opinion, I agree with you all, of the system failing in this, is that these guys, these, you know, your solid junior NCOs or your solid um, subbies who are sticking up for the diggers, who want to make it a better place, not only for sensitivity, but for capability. Um, and I think they both play a role. The way the system is set up, and sort of the link in with Mex's point of it's the way we've always done it. But the way the system is set up, that these people they never get into those higher ranks, where you will not get into those into those um, the ranks that change the doctrine. You will not get into those if you are there to stick up for the boy or stick up for the diggers, to be. All, all about, you know, making it a better troop. You have to be a politician. You have to agree with the politics of the time. Uh, and you would have seen it a million times over, good secos, good sergeants, good subbies, good captains pulling the pin or being pushed out because, well, I've reached ceiling rank and because I'm not brown-nosing or a politician, I'm either getting or being told to... You know, get the boot or I'm discharging because this isn't a system I want to be part of. I got in a incredibly heated rank with, we'll say, the highest rank in the Australian Army in 2019. Uh, I was invited to the junior leadership conference in Canberra. Um, and the argument came out that the all core PESA weight was too much. Anyway, it, back and forward, but I got into an argument um, about no, the weight is real. And the highest rank in the army at the time, said to me, when did you join? I'm like 2014. He said, you have never carried over 20 kilograms in your career. um, And it was, was I'll say, I said, mate, like, you know, heavy weapons, background, whatever, you know, infantry. I've never carried under 40 kilos in my life. Um, and he basically, uh, Corporal Williams, is it Corporal Williams from seven? He's like, I'll be talking to your fucking CO because you are lying to the highest rank in defense. No one since 2012 has carried over 20 kilos. This is in a room full of 1,200 people. The highest rank in the room called me out in front of 1,200 tri-service members and called me a liar to my face and that he'd be in touch with the CO at the time of my unit. That is the that's the representation we have at the top. And does, you, does that person sound like he was a good bloke as a LT captain? mate? No. We need a system that can actually excel these people that give a shit about the boys. Um, you know, we always used to joke around the NCI office. If you're to a promotion, just fuck the boys, look after your career, you'll go up. Um, we need to actually make it that, you know, there's some level of not just political-driven bullshit. You actually have to be good at your job and liked by your subordinates.
6: The biggest math to get out of there really is that, you know, for all the people out there that are massive fuckheads, you know, you can aspire to be the highest rank in the military. There's, there's, hope, there's hope for you out there. If you're a massive fuckhead people, you could become CDF.
8: them yourself up.
1: So, Matt. I mean, we're talking about putting in 360-degree reporting, right, um, which I think the Americans actually implemented it at some point. They do 360 reporting in their system. So if you're, a, you know, and – Don't get me wrong, just to clarify for people that go, well, you know, you need people to produce fucking war fighters and you can't have for the boys. When we're talking about for the boys, I was one of the, I was pretty hard on my lads in training and I looked after them. So we're not saying that you're fucking like a ship and you just mates with them and you just let them get away with shit. Those boys that generally for the, that look after their fucking section are generally the hardest on them as well and and have the highest level of expectation from them. Because they know at the at the point end what could happen if they're not trained properly, and it if they so carry on doing dumb shit like that, right? Um, if and if we talk about
5: why, we- sorry mate, if they un- understand why you're you're the hard taskmaster, it, it, I think that's you know that they get that and they 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 thrive on that. I, one of the things I think what we're talking about here is I I and correct me if I'm wrong. I I believe that the ability for a junior leader to make decisions now has been eroded as well. I think, and it's probably to do with technology and call me the old fart if you want all the bloody radio gear and the headsets and all that sort of thing, a decision which would normally be made by that section commander, and he'd live by his decision and die by his decision now seems to get pushed up levels, up levels, up levels to, to make the most basic of a decision. And I think that's, in, in a lot of the cases there, that's coming back to what we're talking about is, as a young NCO, if, you know, you can't make these decisions and you're not left to train your own soldiers and you're not left to to, to deal with these discipline issues on your own without having to throw the book at people and those types of things, it's driven into you by hire that we make the decisions. It's how it works. I think that's eroding it too because the junior NCO then has that attitude, well, fuck, what? Yeah, what the fucking use am I? Why am I here? So I think just and correct me if I'm wrong. I think that that's been eroded as well in the system that you know young leaders don't
8: get to lead as much as they probably did in the past. Which is um, yeah, Simon, to I guess agree with what you're there. I'd say in this group, I'm probably the most recent NCO um, to leave the defence. The leadership of what you can actually do. The NCOs are as good as they've ever been, if not better. Mm. But what they can actually do now, you've got no control. you have one little issue that you could resolve with, hey, mate, don't be a fuckhead, or hey, boys, we're going to go do this, you have the amount of rope you've got to do with any now is nothing. Um, the capability of what is left to the SECOs is gone. Um, this was the biggest thing every time we had a meeting with the CSM of the full tracks or Lance Jacks about, you know, what is the problem you see? It always came down to you have to empower the SECOs again. Why can't I grab my section? And SECOs are not allowed to run Section PT anymore. SECOs are not allowed to take the boys into the CTA, um, the combat training. They're not allowed to do basically anything. If you want to increase the capability at that level, um, you need to re-empower and the Secos, Simon, just to agree with your point.
5: Yeah, I think I think you're dead right. And look, Hugo touched on it earlier too. You know, if a digger fucked up, you you would punish him, but it wasn't a uh, a charge. It was something relevant. But you'd punish them all, and you'd go along with them as well. And I I, I saw it towards the end of my career too. And I got out in two thousand and seven. Um, that higher level of leadership imposing itself on the juniors and you know that that level of leadership was eroded heavily and i think that's a that's a whether it has any to do with suicide i'm not sure but i think if a young leader knows their soldiers trains their soldiers understands their soldiers and falls back on that point we talked about before doesn't think that soldier should be there they should have the ability to push that up the chain and say look this guy he doesn't fit you know he maybe we should be sending him off somewhere else and If that's been eroded, you know, that's an issue as well. I think it's a a sad point if that's got to the point. But I do agree with your point there, and don't ever get me wrong on that. Um, I I have the greatest respect for the younger soldiers and the junior NCOs now, and I I talk to a lot of them, and they do the best they can with what they have. And,
1: um, you know, I I do have a lot of respect for them. Mate, that uh, that was a big one. What about, uh, so, so moving from culture and and probably one last amplifying comment, do you remember when the boys were a bit naughty uh, in, I don't know, it was like pre-Iraq 2007, 2005-ish, and there was some photos about um, the boys standing on and dressing up as ragged, like as Taliban and the guys had AKs and John Howard got it in the news and they were like, what are you going to do? And he's like, it's just the boys being boys. And it just went away. As soon as you went to the head of the Australian, and he's like, "It's just the boys being boys, letting off some steam. Don't worry about it." And they didn't worry about it. As soon as we give it air and we and it generates, the media get a hold of a whiff of it. They're like, "Let's run this for days." Any you see any incident that happens in the media these days? There's probably only one source and there's one photo, and they'll keep replaying that and and just spinning it up into be. I think we're a product of the, of the media. So, <clears throat> moving from the culture piece, do you think that housing? This is taken direct from from the terms of reference. Housing and financial commitments have an impact on. Do they have an impact on veteran suicide? Uh, so, and I'm assuming in this uh, talking, I the homeless veteran piece is probably. Uh, is that where I'm thinking it is? And financial commitments, I can't see that having an impact. Uh, I think we're one of the to, before i throw it to the floor I, um or put it out there maybe um marsha intelligent bloke you can run this one in um i've never had a problem with housing in or out of defense and i've never had a problem financially with my own commitments uh we're one of the best paid uh we are the best paid army in the world um and we have some of the best uh support financially and, and housing
7: yeah, I think what they're hitting on here is just the uh, the different departments of DVA and their specific responsibilities. So like you've got culture that we've sort of talked about um, already and you've got housing. So all the housing support services that DVA offer and then obviously the financial reimbursement or compensation that DVA are going to give to people with whatever claim. Um, so I think this point is mainly just being um, them trying to highlight that DVA do some very specific stuff. Um, DVA have a job. Uh, we see DVA more as an insurance agency than than a support service. Um, but I think what they're trying to hit on here is, is DVA's sort of narrow mindset, narrow view of what their capability is, is that actually impacting veteran suicide? So is the claims process and it's, failures or not failures, is that resulting in dead diggers or dead soldiers? Is the housing services, like you can get a bloody cleaner for your house, is that not getting a cleaner, is that going to result in a dead digger? Um, I, I agree with you in the sense that I don't think DVA's services have a huge impact on whether or not a soldier is going to resort to suicide. Um, I think that we do have access to, like you said, some of the best, um, I guess, support services post-leaving and the best financial, um, you know, financial commitment in the military, in the, in the entire world. You know, we're getting paid shit loads of money in comparison to, say, the Brits and the Yanks and we're getting paid even more to fucking go overseas. And then when we leave, you get bloody tinnitus and you get tens of thousands of dollars. So um, I don't think these things are resulting in, in dead soldiers. I think where they could go with this, though, is um, are soldiers' basic needs being met once they leave? Um, if you look at something called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, if anyone knows what that is, it's basically, um, you know, do I have a house over my head? Do I have enough money in my pocket to survive? Am I able to eat? Am I able to sleep comfortably? Um, only if I have those things can I then begin to worry about the rest of my fucking mental health. If I don't have that stuff, then, you know, the whole conversation with a fucking psychiatrist is useless because I'm too busy going home worrying about if I can afford rent next week. So I think that's something they should definitely highlight on. Are all the people leaving uh, leaving the service in a good financial position, I think the answer is probably going to be fuck yes, considering all the entitlements that we have. Um, but I think, you know, as far as financial commitments, housing, culture, result, impacting veteran suicide, I, I don't think it's, I don't think it does really.
8: I think there's another this- angle within this as well that I think um, probably the best touch on it would be um, in the book Tribe by Sebastian Junger being that sometimes um, our financial, I guess, with pensions are so good that it, it it doesn't force people to re-find a purpose of what to do. You have these guys that have, you know, an, a back-ish injury, you know, get a Class A pension. I saw it all the last couple of years. There are guys that are completely fine, complete, like honestly, um, Class A pension, sit around doing nothing. They had a purpose in the military, even if they fucking hated it. They had a reason and a purpose to get up at 6.30 a.m. and go to work. And I think there's some of this – there there may be some gap, and I'm happy to be completely wrong on this, that sometimes what we are offered when we leave – the best financial decision you can make is getting injured in the military and leaving with a payout and a pension. But you leave with this and it doesn't increase this purpose. I think you could, you could say, okay, we're paying every single digger who leaves $500,000 a year. And I still believe their mental health would be just as poor with, they still need a purpose. I know myself, the worst mental health I've ever had was leaving to me like coming up to my last day I'm like fuck yeah I'm getting out I'm gonna do whatever I want you know hurrah I got out and then I quickly very quickly realized what the fuck do I what do I get up for now um and for those who you know know me I've got a lot more going on than you know a lot of guys and a lot more opportunities and I know I know guys who are getting up to just do nothing and I think sometimes um our system is so good that it just allows guys to sit around do nothing, never forced to refine a purpose, and they fall down this this big spiral that, you know, has almost been so good it's forced them down. And I'm happy, happy to be wrong on that.
4: No, mate, I completely agree. That's definitely the case like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've talked to um, transition platoons and stuff like that across the Nogra and Tiantil, um, and Tiansville. And the young average digger that particularly comes from infantry goes, well, I've got no skill set, he's happy just to – Take his pension, I'm like, well, um, you know, the program I put together with Ryan Mattel. We had other. There was another amputee. There's people with severe PTSD. I'm not saying every every single person that comes out of defence can work, but you can transition them to a place where they can strive for something, have something to get up for, um, put them in a in a workplace where they're supported and they can function. Um, and then when you look at dollars and cents amount, well, I'd rather take a, a little bit of a smaller pension. But put my wage on top of it. And then I'm putting more super away for when I do retire as well. Like I I think the housing and, and financial situation is sort of hidden behind maybe a bigger, a bigger value where they're, they're just not enabling people to be able to transition successfully into the workplace.
7: Yeah, I think um, people, I think the toxic veteran veteran culture we were talking about before. Um, these veterans leave defence and they see DVA as their new purpose. Rather than Willie, what you were saying is DVA and your purpose should be completely separate. You know, if you if you're taking money because you're entitled to it, uh, that's totally fine. But the re- the receiving of that money should not be your entire life goal. Your life goals should be completely fucking separate to that stuff. And there is a huge gap in the education of these soldiers or the education of these veterans, teaching them that their purpose is not to get money from DBA. Their purpose is something completely different and it's their fucking responsibility to go out there and find that. If they're entitled to money and housing services, that's great, but they need to also go and do something with their lives.
3: You touch on uh, transition here, which is another term of reference, um, but going to the point about housing and money, I think to be devil's advocate for, and I agree with you guys uh, wholeheartedly with uh, uh, that, those comments, depends how you discharged as well. So, for example, my last day in the military was the first day the MPs came in and fucking patted me down. See you, pal. Off you go. What do I do now? And it was like a shock and a disbelief. And my savings from my tours that I'd done because I was studying uni at the time that money that I saved went to that and by the way I had never thought about while I was a happy ignorantly blissful digger by the way ignorantly blissful I didn't think about how I'd save money or uh, pay for housing and stuff when I got out boom padded down out you go how do I and I was like shit how do I because a doctor how do I pay rent I'm, I'm literally not um I just didn't think about those things I was in so much shock And it goes back to, as well, the whole media. So the media's role in this was, we've got rid of a scumbag from the ADF. So I'm watching that. And then that's getting echoed to my family. Then I go see a mate that afternoon, my last day unbuttoning me cams, which I wanted to be a lifer. And I go to their house and his wife walks out of the room, for example, because she saw what happened on the news. And so I actually don't care now. I don't care about my rent. I don't care about my money. I started hitting the drugs. I started going across, My money started going. My uni started failing. And then the momentum continued. Everything you're saying, though, is right. The purpose had been taken from me. And it took for me, to be devil's advocate, rock bottom for me to go, you know what? Identity, if I think I'm a soldier, well, then get the fuck up. And I had to learn that myself. My advocate ran away. A surgeon turned me away, who was also a, a reservist surgeon. He said, how'd you get kicked out? And I told him, I'm not here for that. I'm here for my joints. He said, no, how'd you get kicked out? And I told him, he goes, no, nah, not doing your claims. DVA advocate uh, went off. Like, I just went, this is shit. I'm going to just get lawyers and they can do it because I'm now more tired and I'm more fatigued and I need to lie down on the couch. And I see this every week. Uh, in our role with guys who depending on how you're discharged will make a difference to housing and finances definitely but there's also a combination of one's upbringing genetics and their involvement in the military to start with as well I'll give you I'll give you guys a scenario regarding
6: the DVA finance side sort of thing I'm probably going to be the person that you know goes against the grain as far as DVA. I spoke to DBA seven times today that's You know, I speak to them every day for different type of things. But this scenario I've seen, I would say more than a dozen times the last 18 months. So you'd probably all be aware of the permanent impairment assessment process. Go through, get your claims, claim liability accepted. You do a permanent impairment process. DBA comes back with your incapacity points. You know, goal card if you're allowed and lump sum payment, pension, part lump sum, part pension, et cetera, et cetera. I would like to know. On what planet that, uh, it's not DBA's fault, but on what planet the overseeing body of DBA, whether it's Lib Cosson, whether it's the the chief psychiatrist within DBA, thinks that it is an appropriate or safe thing to do to give $200,000 to a young digger that's got mental health problems, potentially drug alcohol problems, and a litany of other things that could be going on in his life. Two of my diggers from the Afghanistan in 2011 have gone through the permanent impairment process and don't have a fucking cent to show for it. It all went up their nose or it all come out the end of their dick and they've got nothing. So as far as the DBA finance thing is, I, I think the DBA, ComSuper finance side of the thing is the most generous package on the, in the world. I've had a look at other packages, the Americans, Kiwis, Canadians, nothing comes close I'm not saying that we shouldn't have these lump sums available, but if you've got it in your DBA file that you have PTSD, depression, you've had a suicide attempt, you suffer from anxiety, and you've been offered this big permanent impairment lump sum, there should be a caveat put on it that you're not given access to that huge amount of money until a psychiatrist or someone has signed you off as stable and that you can take that. And until that happens... Your money's given to you in a weekly pension so you can actually live. Every Thursday, you get some money in your bank account so you can buy some sayos and magic noodles if that's all you can afford or that's all you're living on. Um, You can put your in-cap payments with it. You can put your emergency veteran payments and your assistance housing with it, and you can live and survive because this concept of giving the hundreds of thousands of dollars to blokes that are just not in a mental – they just look at it and go, new car, Harley, Las Vegas, Coke and hookers – Six months later, I've got nothing. So as far as the finance side of the thing, I think in a certain facet, the financial side of DBA, yes, in that type of situation is contributing to potentially life-threatening sort of situations. It's not done on purpose. I don't believe I had to listen to this bullshit dribble out Jackie Lambie's mouth about how she thinks DBA is denied deny or delay, deny, deny, or whatever it was so that people kill. I do not believe for a second that anyone working for DBA is holding claims back so they can kill people. That is the biggest load of bullshit. And Jackie Lambie should have had a head shoved up her own ass for saying that. So all I'm saying is that I do think in a little way that the financial side of DBA, yes, it can, it is contributing, but not in a broad spectrum contributing to any type of mental health. It's there as a safety net. 100% it's getting abused by a bunch of life say, like they're just saps and frauds out there that are taking advantage of it. We'll probably talk about that a bit later. But if DBA if it falls out of this Royal Commission where they go, right, we've got to look at helping these blokes survive. Let's not give them $400,000. Let's not give them $200,000. Let's give that to them in a weekly pension until they get back on their feet and they're in of a clear mind. They're, they're not drunk. They're not full of drugs. They're not heading off to Las Vegas or King's Crosses as Kieran was talking about, you know, and then we're going to be doing them righty by then. So, yeah, I, I think Broadbrot, it's it's good, but if they just tidy up those little areas, I think overall it's going to be quite safe for the guys and it's, it's a very it, – it, anyone who thinks it's not generous, you don't know, they don't know what they're talking about. They're full of shit.
8: And Hugo, there's actually um, a system sort of in place, not not within defense, but myself, um, having a terminal illness, I am able to access my super early. So what I have to do is I have to go online, print out a form, a doctor has to sign off that, yep, you know, Matt Williams, blah, 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 whatever. And then you can pull your super early. I, I'm not saying it's you know the same thing, but it's you know getting a qualified doctor to assess the person yeah. uh, for then a financial incentive. And if people think it doesn't happen in Australia, it fucking does happen. I'm an example of that. Um, so yeah, you know, I agree that'd be a fantastic thing. Yeah,
6: mate. But uh, I, without you know being too morbid about it, mate, I think if you've got a terminal illness and you want to draw your super early and go out with a bang, mate, you've got every friggin' right to. But if you're if you're a young dig, mate, and and you've come back from a, ter- a, a stint overseas somewhere and you're really in a bad way, then you know, these big amounts of money, it, it all looks flush in your bank account and driving around in your new club sport or whatever it is, but it doesn't do you any good 10 years down the track when it's all gone and you're, and you're left with nothing. So, but yeah, yeah, you're on the yeah. money really for sure.
5: So Thank just you. on that point, guys, I've got, a, uh, I've got a 21-year-old son that's never served in defence. He's a, just got finished his apprenticeship as an electrician. There's no fucking way in hell I would give him 200 grand with his mindset now to go off and you know, look after yourself, son, because uh, you're dead right at that age for someone who's fine, who's just been doing an apprenticeship, he's you know, he's fine, he hasn't been through the same sort of thing that some of these young kids have been through overseas. Um, yeah, not a hope in hell that I'd give him that kind of money and think that he's gonna do something with his life. He's gonna be straight over there with Hugo in fucking Las Vegas. Yeah, know. it's a very it's a very valid point because that's a life skill, what 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 you do with money. You know, it's it's not something you should get when you're in a bad place and you know, you're unsure and you're feeling lost and that type of thing. It's it's not a it's not to make you happy for a short period. It's it's supposed to set you up to 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 live. But that that's a life skill you've got to learn. And a, a young guy, uh, and you know, obviously, different people mature uh, at different times. But generally speaking, we all know young soldiers, fresh out overseas, if they've got something wrong with you, give them a pocket full of money. They're coming to work the next day with a club sport. You know, it's um, yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent there have some sort of assessment system that qualifies this person, you know, they're in a position where they're going to use this wisely and, and, and do something with it, but support that person on that path to getting there. I, I agree a hundred percent with that. I, I've often looked at that, the amount of money they hand out to people. And in particular, I look at the age
1: and just think, you know, that's craziness. Which, which leads me to uh, two questions, one on housing um, and separation from tribe. So, Perhaps the posting cycles and moving people out of there, um, they looked, the army did look at this just as I was leaving. They were looking at stopping posting cycles so that people, you you like the Brits, you joined your unit, you stayed in your unit, you went down to a training establishment, you trained those soldiers going back to your unit and then you went back to your unit Um, and you didn't post around Australia and move um, locations and start creating these networks all, all over again. So um i think that would be something that that i would i'd probably like to look at i know there's probably a negative aspect of that is that if you're a piece of shit in your town and you, you're trying to join the army to move away and get away from it you know maybe that's a different story but um i'll be, be interested to see any thoughts uh, on that and the in the posting cycle and whether that comes into mental health and and with with the housing
6: Oh, of course it does, mate. Know, mate. Imagine going from sunny Townsville where there's no winner to get posted to a shit hole like Singleton. It's fucking awful <laughs> for your mental health, mate. It's the biggest pimple on the end of the, uh, you know, the arsehole of the world, you know. You go from, what is it, winter here in Townsville at the moment is 29 degrees and, you know, it's what, Singleton was probably minus five today and, and, you know, and the town's a piece of shit to go with it. So, no, of course it's got something to do with mental health, mate. You know, like I've served with the British Army and, And one of the things that you can tell about those guys and the way they do their posting by keeping it all in-house is the passion that they have for their unit. So you will be very quickly found out if you're a sack of shit and you you won't be be wanted there. You'll be speared off in a different direction. So, you know, as a 2RA bloke, I I was very lucky. I left 2RA as a full track, two years in single and come back as a snake. So I more or less tracked the British Army style way. And I'm glad I did because it would have been very hard to get passionate about a job in a unit where I didn't want to be. So, you know, and then you look at the, the, the bigger picture for me is CSMs, RSMs coming back to the unit that have never served in the unit. So I'm not going to say the bloke's name, but many years ago, literally one of the biggest cockheads I ever met in the Army, come back to 2 R as an RSM, never served the day in in, in 2 R in his life. And still to this day, he's probably one of the most hated blokes to ever walk through Samish online. So, and that was because had zero background, didn't know what the, you know, you look at 2 RR, one rr you know, Northern Battalion, 6 RR would have their, you know, their type of like sort of mentality and the way they operate, exactly the same as we did up here. And then all of a sudden you're bringing in this, especially at the OC level, the CSM, RSM level, and you've got a digger that's gone digger, land shack section commander over the, the course of eight years, and now your CSM's come from another unit that, you know, doesn't have that mentality. I, I think it's bad. I always thought it's bad. I, I love the concept of you march into to, to 9 RR or, or 5, 7 RR or whatever it was at the time, and you get to stay there. If you want to leave, well, so be it. but if you want to come back and stay within your own battalion family, I, I think it's a great thing. And it was always a bugbear of mine, and... The biggest argument that I ever heard, and I don't know you guys that went through the ranks to hit Sergeant, the biggest argument I got given back to me was that, oh no, if you leave the battalion as a full track and you come back as a Sergeant, you won't have any respect back there. You should be too familiar.
1: Well, you probably shouldn't be a Sergeant if you don't get respect, eh?
6: Hey? Mate, mm. that was my argument. I said, if I, you've, you know, you, you fed me this bullshit line about being a subject matter expert to get me to post a single in the first place. So you are blown wind up my ass there and now all of a sudden I can't go back because I'm going to get no respect. Uh, you, you know, you must post some of the biggest fuckheads in the world, the schema that, you know, feed you that line. So it's, mate, I, I don't, yeah, I don't get it. I, I love the family mentality and the tribe, mate. We're, infantry soldiers, mate, the tribe mentality is what drives us. You know, it's what makes you fight the bloke. It's a foot taller than you in the pub. It's the tribe mentality. So when you go screwing around with the digger's tribe mentality, you you play with his morale, you play with his combat power, and you don't do that. It's two things as a commander a commander you should never do. You don't play with morale, and you don't play with combat power and combat effectiveness. So, you know, I know that's a big broad brush thing, but it comes out of tribe. You can't, and you know, I'd argue that I'd argue it with anyone that does.
8: And it makes your record- well,
4: look at Schema. You just mentioned Schema, mate. Like they need a proper boot in the arse if they're going to review things like. Um, an example of that was right in the middle of my rehab, I'd only been home from Afghan for a couple of months, um, some warrant officer schemers on the on the phone just adamant that he's going to post me out of the unit. Look, mate, I'm like right in the middle of my rehab and this warrant officer goes, oh, another one of these diggers with a back injury, is it? I called him a four-letter word and let him know. And, like, that's, that's how at a touch they are. And we rely on these people to be moving, like, significant pieces around for our defence force. Like, they, that needs to come under a view massively.
1: I think you see the biggest biggest gap in retention is, is that eight-year, when they're literally like, you go on a single mate, and they're like, I'd fucking rather discharge than leave. But if they knew they were coming back, it's different. You go and, do, you know, you pay, you do your licks, train the next generation of boys, come back, uh, I think you would have the turnover. I don't know, Matthew, what do you reckon, bro? Um,
7: well, I went to Singo for a year, I don't know, the five-year mark, I think, and at the end of that I was pretty much ready to call it. Um, <laughs> when, I, when I got back to one, I had to sit down with the CSM because um, there was a bunch of shit going on, but at one point it was a choice between discharge or even go back to Singo rather than the bullshit they were going to put me through. So um, it ended up being a, uh, a discharge in the end. And I think you're right that people get to a point where they're being pushed out of a, a, I guess, a family they've known for, you know, four, five, six years, and their their option is go spend time with a bunch of people that they want nothing to do with or discharge and maybe hang out with some of the boys that are already out or maybe go back and actually see their real family. Um, I think the retention problem is a very real thing. And if schema are the ones running it, then absolutely they should be looked at. Um, I think retention also comes down to the way the unit's being managed. A couple of people have already said it, the CSMs that are coming back that have never been in the unit before the OCs, the COs that are taking battalions in a direction that, you know, is going to look good on their CV, but doesn't actually look good for the battalion itself. You just get all these people fucking off instead of hanging around to make the army a better place.
8: Retention is the biggest issue I saw um, in the final years of my career. In the final year being 2020, um, all nine section commanders of my company discharged, um, me being the last one. All nine gone, four or five of the Lance Jacks went. Therefore, you're looking at, you know, 13 or 14 diggers, most of which hadn't done sub one or two, having to step into positions. And this just takes so much experience, so much everything out of the unit. And there should have been something looked at to, okay, why the fuck is this guy leaving? You know, this guy's done 14 years in as a as a full track, or he's done this and there's not even a not even a link at to, okay, what what potentially could we do to keep him in? He wants to do a year at Singo. He wants to do this uh, rather than, oh, no, fuck you. you know, we'll just make someone else up. Um, you know, to lose every single section commander in the company within 12 months, um, just ridiculous. And no one saw it. No one saw it as an issue. It was just, we'll just make someone else up.
6: Was this at 7 RAR, Willie?
8: Seven RAR last
6: year. Right. I can tell you now that guy affected the discharge of whole sections into it, RAR. Um,
8: yeah, and sections. That. It, it pushed into um, guys who were getting out medically. Yeah. Um, pushed them absolutely out the door. Uh, yeah. Like myself, I was like, "Well, look, I'm happy to do this, happy to do that." and other other things coming in career. Next thing, yeah, you know, here's your notice on your medical set, uh, and it was like, well, "What the fuck is going on here?" Um, and you know, I had a lot more options and a lot of guys, I'm incredibly fortunate, but seven hour lost last year, as far as I'm aware, um, we lost full sections of guys, uh, and had over 60%, um, uh, guys leaving as far as I'm aware oh, yeah. and you're losing, you're losing those secos. And I remember there was three secos put in a discharge on a day when the RSM at the time you know, he was leaving, got a plaque, got all this shit. There's full tracks who it was their last day. It was their last day. One of them, 15 years, four tours, didn't even get a thanks. They just, you know, I oh, had knock off there. And it's like this This guy came, did under 12 months because he was kicked anyway, but under 12 months just in a high-ranked position and gets a fucking plaque and his name on the wall and all this bullshit. And there's these guys that are given their life. They've lost their mates overseas to get just a, oh, yeah, fuck you. No one ever cared about your career in the end anyway. Oh,
6: mate, and this was from a bloke that used to sit down in his CP, mate, and again and, and joke about getting getting a DSM. And I was like, mate, I, I know for a fact you're not joking. You're, you're legitimately sitting there thinking about how you can get a DSM. And and I've said all along when I went into the veteran community and everything like that is obviously we've all got people we don't get along with we don't like. And I come up with this mentality that I'll go along to get along my wife's just snuck into the room and she knows exactly what I'm talking about as well. So, yeah, it's it's shocking, mate. Yeah, and as I said, it just goes to show you the, the the dangerous thing about really bad, poisonous leadership from the top. So it's, you know, even those hardened section commanders, mate, they won't tolerate it and they can't put up It's bad for their mental health as well. And when you were talking about your section commanders leaving and not getting the plaque, I remember med discharging out of the army, mate, and I got a gift. It was my sergeant's mess bill. So, yeah. That, that was my gift on after 14 years in the army, a bill from the sergeant's mess. And when I told the RSM and the brigade to shove it up his ass, or if he wanted me to pay it, to drop the bill off to my house, and he done neither. So,
1: so uh, looking at, at, at tribe and uh, that leadership, and the family came up a few times in that. Um, I think this posting, I don't see where the actual posting cycle is in the terms of reference, and, and that family unit. Um, But I'll be actually looking at making a submission And when I spoke to some of the the guys in the RAR corporation, um, making a submission into some of these um, and drawing down some of the transcripts from this. Um, The last question I want to do just before we head off, and I know we're running a little bit out of time, um, and I don't want – I want to just keep this – we've answered a little bit of the question already. But my answer is retention came up quite a bit, postings and and moving – Remember the DFR, DF having DFRDB? So question six. Um, after completing 20 years of service, you could just get a pension and leave. And you didn't have to, you know, you're 37 years old, you joined the army at 17, you got your it wasn't a medical pension, you just you just like the old Roman legionaries, right? You did 20 years, you have a plot of land and off you go. Hey, you can't do mate. something. I got DFRDB. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't use <laughs> sandals and spears, mate. I'm not a Roman. <laughs> They got rid of that what in 1996, and then yep. the my argument is is the whole DVA system always seems to go back around a financial service um, uh, officer. You summed it up and said we sort of look at DVA more as a uh, insurance company than we do an actual service provider for the veteran community. If we got rid of the overheads of running DVA, it's the staffing them. Um, on top of the posting cycles, like I think it's like in, in excess of tens of millions of dollars to do the posting cycle and move everybody around with removals every year and or paying pensions out to ComSuper, $400,000, you know, what that is every year. Would it be worth just bringing back DFRDB or bringing back the pension? I would be interested to know your thoughts. Uh, Simon, you're on DFRDB. Yeah, look, I'll, I'll give you my view on that. Look, I I,
5: I get where you're coming from, but I can tell you that a DFRDB pension after 20 years, and I got out as a woe too, you, you can't live on it. You've got to work, um, particularly if you've got a family and uh, you, you're raising kids, and, and you're dead right. You could join at 18 and get out at you know, 38 after 20 years. Um, that system was fairly antiquated. However, if it was manipulated and probably adjusted slightly, it probably could keep make retention keep people in, Um, and it may help with some areas. But look, mate, for me, there is no way in Hades I could have, you know, stopped, got out of defence, stopped, and lived happily. Had to keep working, and it, it really is just jump change for me to. By podcast gear and motorbike parts and whatever it may be, but um, I think superannuation schemes are uh, are better. And but it's it's that retention we're talking about earlier. If if a soldier stays in and does that that time, then it's going to be better for them later on in life. But then what they've gone down this path now is to get that money. You've got to be sixty five. So if you think of a 55, well, I'm 53 now. If I was still in defense at 53, I'm old and fat and lazy now. I'm going to be hanging around until I'm 65 so I can get my pension because I'm probably unemployable. So I think it's a tough, it's sort of a cat, you know, catch-29 system because you either go down that path of pensions after 20 years to keep people in or you put people on superannuation so that they have a fund in the background when they do discharge that they can continue to build. Uh, for retirement in the future. But I, I don't think it's a solution um, to, you know, to take away this DBA scheme and those types of things. I, yeah, I, I think they're, the path they're on is is not bad, but I, I tend to agree with Hugo on that sort of thing. I don't think that they I – th- I think they've gone into panic mode now where they're too quick to just hand things out Um probably through fear that if someone does suicide or wherever it may be then you know they're, they're worried about that blame game but it's a real tough one to answer mate but I don't think I don't think a DFRDB system unless it was severely looked at and adjusted uh, would be an answer It may keep people in longer, but it still gives us that when they get out what skill sets do they have what are they going to do later in life you know, how are they going to be what are they going to do so I think it's yeah a bit of a catch 22 I think that there's two issues
8: with an answer um, that come to my mind. Of that is, if you have a system of 20 years and a pension, it may keep people around who you don't fucking want around for that 20 years. You might have some fucking shit cunt who shouldn't have got in in the first place, thinking, "Well, I'd never succeed outside of defence. Fuck it, I've got 19 more years to retire young, and that's it." Um, and then the other argument in the system too is why? Why would I wait 20 years to get it? I can go through Kabuka, Singo, whatever, six, seven months, go in. So I've got, well, okay, example from one of my diggers who medically discharged, same day as me. Um, he had done well under 12 months in the military total, um, said he had PTSD from Singleton, um, discharged on a full pension. Why, why would we retain someone for 20 years for a pension when if you're hunting that, um, the best diggers are not hunting a pension, whether it was a million dollars at 20 years or a million dollars at one year, the good diggers are there because they have a purpose to go there and be for the boys and fight in a war and just do the job. Um, you know, I think it could almost be worse that you're making these dickheads hang around and as bad as it feels, you know, the bad taste in your mouth, knowing this eight month digger is getting a pension for the rest of his life. At least he's not in the unit. At least it's cleared up some space for someone else. Um, I think looking at what the terms are to actually receive a pension um, should be looked at as well. And maybe it's not a time thing, maybe it's something else and I have no solution for that, I wish I did.
3: To to talk specifically about suicide, the literature is pretty clear that um, particularly with compensation, uh, I urge everyone listening to look at compensation neurosis and the sickness role and or illness behaviour. And basically, when you're waiting for compensation, um, cash is, and it's going back to what Waza was saying about the hierarchy, Maslow's hierarchy, getting those basic things, a bit of cash has been shown to actually help the person take those first few steps. But like Kago was saying too, I know a guy recently who got $400,000 and they all up one of nose nose and into pokies. So there is a hierarchy of needs, but attending to those needs appropriately is where the discussion has to be had, particularly around this compensation neurosis. Because imagine in our utopia, they said, right, you're pretty injured. Yep. If we see you start reaching these marks, getting better, then you start getting rewarded for getting better. But at the moment, it's like, if you don't get better, well, you're, pretty, you're pretty rock bottom. So here's a payout. So it wouldn't be great if the incentive was to get paid to get better. I I, I don't know how it would really work. It kind of sounds a bit oxymoronic. Um, but this does go back to, and Matt said it very earlier in the podcast about um uh, soldiers are confused when they're in. And uh they say, Righto, Matt, on junior leaders course, this is an adult learning environment. You're like, Yeah, all right. I'll 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 put my hand up and make a comment. Sit the fuck down and shut up. Oh, but you just said it's an adult, shut up, we're charging you. What the hell? And so the confusion starts way, 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 way back at the conditioning part of the military.
2: To talk think- to Maddie's point, I think any system is gonna get uh, you're gonna have people that are gonna abuse any system, right? So I think we need to focus on the upper echelon or the people that aren't abusing the system rather than focus all our energy on the people that are abusing it, because every single system has the ability to be abused and will be abused at some level. But I think the percentage is much lower than what we probably think. It's the it's that, you know, the squeaky wheel uh, getting all the attention. It's the those people talking to the media, et cetera, that are getting all the attention. But every system will be abused at some point. So there's no perfect system from that point of view.
8: See, I'd somewhat agree with – uh, sorry, disagree with that it is um, the squeaky wheel. Um, in my last, say, 18 months as a full track at the unit, almost every single digger had their tinnitus um, paperwork in and payout or payout on the way from Singleton before that even reached the unit. And, you know, your tinnitus payout, I haven't got mine if someone wants to throw me some figures, but I think... About it's, 15 grand. Well, some of them were receiving up to 70. Oh, um, fuck. There was guys receiving up to $70,000 from Singo. And Singo, if you go to Singo in 20, I don't know, after 2015... You're talking. Everyone has peltors. Everyone has, you know, double hearing pro on the range. There is no, there is no reason turning around. And this is every single person. And you're talking SINGO marches out, however many a year, between fifteen and seventy thousand dollars a person. I would argue that it, it's a bit more, um, bit more than a squeaking wheel. Yeah, um,
2: I guess. Yeah. To give that context for me, maybe I got out in nine mm-hmm. so I certainly wasn't experiencing that in my 17 years or when I got out. So I guess I'm only coming from that point of view. So, you know, happy to be updated oh. on where that, those stats are currently at, that's for sure. But it's, um, you know, that that's screams of a cultural issue somewhere along the lines, doesn't it, if that's happening at that level. Um, but it certainly wasn't the case uh, when I got out. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of years, I guess, between us there.
8: I've always been a fan too of once you're a permanent downgrade, um, depending, you know, on your injury to lose your service allowance. You know, I know me for the last two years of my career, I sat at work doing really fuck all. Um, you know, I had a section of injured guys, but I went home at sixteen hundred every day, um, and I got paid the exact same as some poor dig sitting out in the field in the piss and fucking rain doing guards, doing all this bullshit. Um, you know, I know guys who had completed their complete four years and never serving a day outside of you know ten platoon rehab. Um, you know, your your service allowance is given to you as a make up for the overtime you do we all know here that it would never fucking make up for if we got paid overtime but you need to stop medically being injured in defense force is incentivized and if anyone here thinks it's not it's it's fucking wrong it is incentivized to be injured in the defense force to you know not lose your legs but to if you think you know there's an incentive to well i don't have to work then i don't have to go outfield I sit around here and do fuck all. I'm getting paid as much as that bloke over there, and I'll get out and get on the pension for the rest of my life. We need to re incentivize getting better, doing your job. And instead of making it, you know, there is incentive to be a shit cunt, we need to actually have incentive to be a better fucking soldier. And, you know, me and all the ASECOs have always talked about you have a base salary of $50,000, you have a tier system. If you're running under a nine minute BFA, you get five grand extra a year if you maintain that. If you're shooting, you know, over 150 points, um, on your LF or RF, whatever it is now, you have some sort of tier system to actually incentivize better fucking soldiers, um, rather than incentivizing discharge. I know every time at work someone would, you know, trip over in the office and you know twist their ankle. Fuck yeah, DVA boys! And it was like it was like the thing to do. Um, you know, we were taking the piss, but that's what it's like to we actually incentivize. Getting better, as you said, Glenn. We need to make it, you know, people think you can't improve from this. You can always get better. Um, and to incentivize that would be such a useful thing for everyone.
6: You you would be shocked at the amount of abuse and fraudulent stuff that goes on in that system. It is I, I like so since taking over doing like the the advocacy at our and the Veteran Hub there, I've probably done you know, over 230 or 40 claims. I haven't brought all my stuff home there, but that's just a two hour, hour plus the rest I've done here from home. So already now I'm at, you know, the amount of claims i done this time last year and I finished up in November. So it, it, it's outrageous. I, it would be my estimate that I would believe that at least 30% of claims submitted to DVA would be done in a fraudulent manner and you have this group of individuals out there that will, and they do it overtly on Facebook, um, no, no doubt they would do it overtly in phone calls, that are directing people in what to say, how to say it, what doctor to go to, what medical type of medical report you need, what to say to DBA, what advocate is, you know, not so much veteran-friendly that... but works in either not, you know, in that little grey area of deception. So it's shocking, mate. I seen at the start of the year, and God bless him, a bloke called her out for it. She was a, you know, I'm not going to get into what she, what she done because she probably, if she happens to watch this, she'll know what I'm talking about, but in no way, way, shape or form would have been in a role in the military that required her to wear a pack. But she asked in a veteran forum what the weight carriage tables were for pack marching because her knees were fucked. Now, I'm not saying that her knees aren't shot. They very well be. But your knees aren't shot from pack marching, sweetheart. I can tell you now that in your job you did not do two CFAs in marching order every year. You did not carry 45 kilos for 15 kilometres in two hours and 45 minutes. But that's what you're trying to tell people, and it's bullshit. I served in the Army at that time, and I watched all the non-core people do their webbing walks around 3 Brigade. So it it it's the system is it's i'm not saying it's to blame for it but it's its own worst enemy because of how generous it is and how easily it is to manipulate i've always been of the opinion that the dva fraud department and i know who they are because i don't care if people want to come after me i am one of the blokes that fucking dobs people in and i've done it this year i've done it last year i've done it years before I put my name to the to the complaints that I make. I've had hate email come that to me, calling me for every name under the sun doing it, and I don't care because you roading the system is taking away from the two or three blokes that I'm helping at now that are still waiting. So, if we can do something when they're, they're looking into these terms of reference, as far as DBA goes, DBA needs to toughen up their fraud department, toughen up questioning people. Like they've got every right to question people, and I don't know if you remember. Jackie Lambie standing in the Senate, whether it was at the start of this year or the end of last year, using her Senate privilege to name a psychiatrist, name and shame him in her Senate, in her whatever they call it, parliamentary privilege. What that silly clown didn't, didn't specific, uh, specific specifically say was this psychiatrist, all right, was having all these people come to him who had never deployed outside the country, who were claiming PTSD and depression, And he was not diagnosing them with it. So they started putting these complaints in here, these group complaints, and then a group, you know, whatever it was, that made it to Lambie. And all of a sudden, this poor bloke has his reputation in tatters now because he could see through the bullshit that was sitting in front of him. So the system is – that's what I'm saying. If the DBA system was not good, then why are all these fraudulent, lying assholes out there trying to take advantage of it? If the system's so shit – Why are you trying to get into it? Why are you lying and why are you going to the biggest loudmouth in Parliament that doesn't know, you know, a woman that's IQ is probably a number that resembles a shoe size, going to her and getting her to run your lies in Parliament? It makes the rest of us look like idiots. And it's why I have the set of rules with my advocacy that I do. I keep a very short left and right of arc. That way I know the blokes I'm helping out and the girls that I'm helping out are genuine and everyone else, off you go somewhere else. Go and you know take your Chuck Norris fantasy story somewhere else and tell them to someone who's you know going to believe your bullshit. Because I'm sure as hell not. So you know if we can tighten that up in that DVA system, you know we're going to save a lot of money. You know, and, and it's one of the this- things, it's one of the things that clogs the system too. Because these DVA delegates, they're not stupid. They know if a you know a blanket counter puts a claim in for PTSD and his description and his claim on his my services, I was. I was detached to a sniper pair outside the wire in afghanistan well no you weren't mate i'm not i'm not accepting your PTSD on that bullshit story get the fuck out of here so that's clogging the system up that's what's making the claim system slow all these bullshit claims that are going in so i hope and i say this i hope they do it correctly but i hope dva stiffen their acceptance process up big time at the end of this and then watch the whinging start then you know and i think it was mentioned before there's the fear of doing that because of the threat of this suicide, the threat of mental health. Oh, DVA don't accept my claim. I'm going to go hang myself in the back of the in, in my backyard in a tree. Well, DVA is the least of your problems. You know, if, you, if you're going to be considering hanging yourself in the backyard, or, you know, with a tree, a, on a tree. So, you know, it it it's a system that is its own worst enemy because of how generous it is.
4: To have a- this issue, I think starts within defence, mate. And you know, I hate this. I really hate it. If, you know, the incident we were involved in where Ben got killed, you know, if the amount of claims that are gone in for that, people that are living on pensions that weren't even there, I would have been at a fucking U2 concert if everyone that said was there was there. Like, and defence had, you know, for someone that records everything and they can tell you if you got an extra water bottle out of the Q store, they can't tell people who was at a critical incident I know diggers and stuff from one hour that went to you know see a civilian, so I can told a story. No one bothered to even fact check it. Said they were at air incident, so and and gave signs and symptoms that they were struggling, and without any sort of further you know evidence check, they've started them on medication. So six months later, they do have a problem because you have got a fat sort of mess that's just you know on pain meds or um, antidepressants that they don't need. And now that, like oh, yeah, I hate that. And I think defence needs to do a better job of, of their recording system before it even gets to DBA in that regard. Not to open a massive
8: can of worms, but it,
6: these- Open people, it, Willie, open it.
8: Oh, fuck, i mean, fuck it.
4: Shoot the lid off it.
8: You know, fraud, making fraud claims and, you know, all this bullshit. In some sort of a way, they are, let's call it, seeking help, even if it's not the right way. I don't believe, and I'm happy to be completely wrong and be the biggest cunt in the world, I don't believe it's these people that are killing themselves. In my opinion, the guys that are killing themselves um, and, you know, Seven had a, a someone tragically pass um, in the last couple of days, the guys that are killing themselves are not these pathetic cunts frauding this. They are the best fucking solid dudes who are fucking war fighters who at some way are not sticking their hand up for help, who are having problems um it is not these pathetic cunts case uh sorry chasing um a paycheck it's the guys you don't expect um it's your solid digger through and through guys they're the ones killing themselves um and there is a systemic problem somewhere that somehow you know i can't tap into that is causing these good dudes you know, these pathetic cunts that are asking for help from everywhere to try and get money, well, at least they're asking for help. What we need to do is somehow put in that these fucking good dudes, they're the ones, you know, not only asking but then receiving it. Um, and thats it's its such a hard thing. You know, we see and I believe defence has, I'll call it almost like an anti-male um, sort of um, doctrine through and through. Look, Look at the BFA scores. Look at haircuts. I don't give a shit. Um, If we're talking about capability, then gender has no fucking role to play in that. It's bullshit. Um, You know, and and at the end of the day, if we're talking about veteran suicide, we are talking majority, absolute majority young men killing themselves. Um, No one would say that. No one would stand up and go, we need to look after the young men of the Defence Force. Yet we have all this other bullshit. I can't tell you how many times my... Email at work is full of this, you know, domestic violence against women, and you know, women this, women that, and I think that is all fantastic, and I'm a massive supporter of it. But when the fuck have I ever gone to, you know, a morning tea looking after the blokes who, in an infantry battalion, is 99.9% of people are young men. Um, when when the fuck are we being? When are the good guys being looked after? One of the biggest things I ever had was I was asked to go to a kids' cancer event in my uniform. Hey, mate, it'd be great if you could wear your uniform to these kids. I asked, got knocked back. No, you're not to do it. Fucking that weekend, I see the Mardi Gras, people walking in uniform. Now, I'm not against that, but I'm like, what, where the fuck do our standards lie within this? This is bullshit. Um, I had men kicked off the trip because they didn't pass BFA scores. Now, as pathetic, you might, as, pathetic as you think that is, you know, How can, if you look on a BFA slip now, male, female, X, and the X standard is the same as the female standard, we need to stop this bullshit double standards across, you know, age, sex, whatever, um, and actually look at the core issue of who are the people killing themselves. It's not these cunts, you know, seeking every dollar under the sun. It's probably that dude who rocks up, does his job every single day, has never got a fucking medal for it, would never ask for one, and, so, and he's never stuck his hand up, and he's the guy you'd least expect that you know you find out that has killed himself. It's fucking horrific, and I'm sure you have all had very similar.
6: No arguments with that, mate, none whatsoever. And I, I I done the research. I don't have it with me. I think it might be on my laptop at work, but there was a young lad that was keeping a suicide veteran register. If you've got time to spare, track it down, go back – through the last 200 veteran suicides, pick out all the combat corps boys from the Army and you factor in the percentage of what they make up and then factor in the percentage of how many many combat corps enlisted soldiers out there, young men, have a voice in an sort, have a voice, you know, in a a big ESO or something like that. You know, that part in the parcel I I linked up with Max and Adrian was that it's, you know... They're both outside-the-wire gunslingers like me that are sick and tired of a system that didn't give us a voice. You know, we, we have a red fucking lanyard for a reason. You know, we've supplied the most casualties and we work, you know, we, we sacrifice the most in a field environment and an operational environment, yet we're the ones that, you know, we don't have a voice. And, and just touching on the women thing, got a lot of great friends that are women in the, in, in the military, in the veteran community as well. You will not ever convince me that women aren't overrepresented, all right? Whatever percentage of veterans of women make up in the military and the veteran community, I guarantee it, it is overrepresented in every facet of the veteran community, in every facet of the service community. Go to the Invictus Games and look at the percentage of women in the Invictus team. I guarantee it doesn't match up with the percentage of women that are serving in the ADF. So if they want to talk about equality and doing the right thing and looking after everyone, then stand by your word give everyone fair representation. You know, like well, I've got a heap of gay mates that are in the army as well. I've had, I've had the m- mates for years that have been gay. They don't have anything to do with the gay. The last thing in the world you'd see them do is putting their uniform and marching in the gay Mardi Gras. They wouldn't do it. They, they are diggers and soldiers like the rest of us and they're embarrassed by the stuff that goes on. You know, and I talk to them regularly about it and just touching, going back to my, my girl mates that are still in the army and my girl mates that are out and I know that you guys that have them as well you go and speak to one of your chick mates, one of those tough-ass women that drink rum cans and will make a fist and punch in the mouth of being a dickhead. Ask them if they had the opportunity to do a pre-enlistment course before they stepped through the gates of Kapuka. They're already lowering the standards at recruiting by patty caking young girls into the army. It's bullshit. And if you go and have a look on the army website about the pre-conditioning course, it says there in plain black and white and I read it the other week that this course, it's designed for everyone, but it's specifically designed for women. So already we're taking away the opportunity for young men, steering it back into this patty cake environment and taking away the shock value that should be there at at Recruit Training School by shuffling these people through. You know, and the other thing about it is you fail, back in my day, you fail two BFAs, you're in a world of hurt. You're staring at at a notice to show cause to get out. I seen a thing posted online of this slovenly looking creature that was doing rehab to keep her in the army. You know, she was three pick handles across the arse and the army's bending over backwards to keep her in the army. Waste of money, waste of time and taking up a spot for a good young motivated female in this country to step into the army. So what, what are we doing? We, we started talked about it at the beginning. We're already lowering the, the expectations of our recruits. we tiptoeing them into the army on a six-week preconditioning course because you've showed no initiative or made motivation to get yourself ready to join the army. I, I, I was a shearer before I joined the army. I had to quit work, work out how I was going to learn to friggin' run again, how I was going to learn not to punch the bloke next to me that was annoying me and try to keep my hands in my pockets when I got to Kapuka. So you have to show some type of initiative and the army's taken away the shock value. It's taken away the initiative of people getting in. So you know it, it's I hope, I hope this is going to change. I, I don't, honest to God, I don't see it changing. I think society's taken too much of a grasp over in the military. I don't think we've got leaders with enough spine that are going to steer us back in the right direction. I think the leaders are there. I think they're probably two ranks away where they need to be, you know, to get us in the right direction.
8: And those leaders, Hugo, who will take us in the right direction will never get to the rank they need no, to
6: You're 100% be. right, mm-hmm. Willie. They won't. So I know a couple of them. There's a couple of... Uh, he was a company commander here. Um, I believe he was a CO recently another battalion. I'm not going to say where. I don't want to pin the bloke out, but he's a guy I genuinely hope that hangs around. He was even mentioned a handful of times on the I'm Not adverse, I'm not adverse Instagram page about being a good dude earlier this week, and I happen to pin his name in there as well because I reckon he's a top fella, and I've got this hope in my stomach that he hangs around and he gets one of these two- or three-star roles where he can start smacking a few people in the head and booting him out and getting us going in the right direction again. But like you said, Willie, whether he hangs around and wants to tolerate dead shits that are, that are there now, I, I don't know. That's just a sad
8: thing. And why would he? I go, you know, you look at that level. I if, wouldn't. Let's say he has 500 people beneath him. You go in any other industry, switched on, good dude, 500 people, under you, you're you earning $3 million a year as a CEO. Imagine
6: being, imagine being counselled by Angus Campbell or David, David Morrison on standards and expectations. Imagine that. You know, it'd be like a, a paedophile talking about childcare. No, it's, it's, it's
1: ridiculous.
8: Uh, you never carried over t- forty kilos though. Hugo. Over kilos. 20 <laughs> 20 <laughs> Great.
1: Twenty kilos, wasn't
8: it? Yeah, twenty. Sorry. I do
1: Does he know? Does he know the body armour weighs more than twenty fucking kilos? Oh, uh, well, he,
8: he asked me, Willie. How? What did? Well, Corporal Williams. Um, would you like to tell the audience here what um how you had that weight? I'm like, well, your body armour is what seven plus ammo. You're at Beasley. You know 20, and then your mag 58, you're already there, and I haven't even got any water. Like, what the fuck? What do you think? Because there's this larger um, female talking about how the all corps PES does not represent anything that a modern soldier will do. Uh, I don't know what the all corps is, 5Ks at 10 kilos or some shit. It doesn't represent anything a soldier will ever do, and... Uh well, th- the good thing was I was like straight off chemo, thinking I was dying the next week. So I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'll flame this cut in front of these people. <laughs> I, was, like, <laughs> I look over. There's two two commando dudes. Just like fucking shut up, man. Like <laughs> just leave it, bro. them.
1: Yeah, absolutely, mate. Adrian, uh, do you want to round us out, mate? That's we're coming up to a
0: little bit now. Yeah, why not, mate? I think we've made. There's, there's been some. Uh, awesome points. I think incentives is the biggest one that I've heard so far. We, we built a, a welfare model. Unfortunately, like Hugo said, it's going to be hard to see how anyone can get, turn this around. Once any government ever builds a welfare model, you never find any government that turns it off. Um, and at the moment, the welfare model is incentivizing people to to um, do the wrong thing rather than incentivizing people to stay in or get better. So that's probably one that we definitely need to change. Uh, across a few of these questions, I think I just hope that they look at this. They, they say they're going to look at it systemically, that's or, or systematically. Hopefully they look at it holistically too instead of just saying... Um, People with no money in their bank are killing themselves. Therefore, we should put more money in everyone's bank. I think that's a Band-Aid solution. People that are homeless are doing X. Therefore, we should give everyone a free house. Or, I mean, they made that mistake when we were talking about jobs. When we all on this call know that it was people looking for purpose, the military gave them that. Someone turned around and said the military was their job. Therefore, if we give them a job, they have uh, purpose. And we turn shooters into shelf stackers at the supermarket. So... The Band-Aid solutions don't work. The the, the welfare model doesn't work. Um, we need to look at wrapping incentives into keeping people in and keeping people healthy, uh, and hopefully we can turn it around. Mate, that is I, – I think we've kind of gone across all the broad points, covered everything. Um, there is a few minor gaps, but I think, as everyone said, if – you word your submissions the right way, there is a a term of reference there that you can stick it to and you can get them in there. For anyone listening who doesn't know how... Uh, let me get the reference real quick Submissions.defence.veteransuicide.royalcommission.gov.au. whether they made it that long so no one knows how to get there I don't know but if you google um, veteran royal commission or anything like that you'll find it and there's a link there where you can read through the terms of reference and there's a link where you can sub- make your own submission so I guess that's the big call to action for everyone listening. We need people. We've heard some good points here. Um, they don't want outlier points. They they are looking for issues that that can be replicated. Or they can find multiple stories going down the same line. But if you're listening to this, if you want things to change or if you want to have your voice heard, make a submission in uh, on the Royal Commission website. And that's all I've got, mate.
1: No worries, guys. Uh, any safe rounds before we end it? I have one, mate. I just thought i throw out there.
5: Uh, look, I just wanted to throw it in there that this suicide thing is not just a veteran problem. And I hope that at the end of the day, they do this commission and they look at it holistically across the nation Um. I oh, talked about it earlier. My son's only young. He had friends at school committing suicide. So, it, the problem is massive. It's bigger than just veterans, and I take nothing away from veterans at all. But I just, I really hope that this brings to the surface this issue nationwide. It's it's everybody, mate. It's farmers. It's kids. It's you know. It's. Uh, was mentioned earlier it's uh workers you know in industry killing themselves as well it's it's a huge issue massive problem i just hope that this is broad enough to cover everybody not just one set of people i think it's uh it's important to do that as well
2: mate I, I'd, I could, I'd have to agree hawks there with you 100 percent, just because the industries i work in uh it is across the board but um in my experience as veterans we have a lot more available to us if i'm really honest there are a lot more avenues there's a lot more from funding right through to all other services available to us um even some of the industries i'm working around police um first responders construction they have not even one tenth of the availability that we have to us so i think we need to keep perspective on that too at some point
6: Brilliant point glenn and i couldn't agree with you more i spent four or five hours with the security officers out at the Townsville Jail a couple of weeks ago, the amount of shit those poor guys and girls out there have to put up with on a daily basis is mind-blowing. And their mental health dramas out there are significant. I had a good chat to a lot of them and exactly what you said before, they don't have anywhere near the support factor that defence has and they're just battling through. So I think you're 100% right. We've got to keep it in perspective and we've got to stay accountable. You know, like if people are getting around saying that, oh, there's no help out there, well, you're either lying and full of shit or you need to ask some some questions. You need to make some phone calls and, you know, we need to, we need to be accountable and we need to be our, you know, in the army, you know, what did we do before our mate got to us to help us if we were hurt? Was self-aid, buddy aid and then Kazovac. We need to be getting back into that self-aid and helping ourselves. If we're not feeling well, fuck. Ah, you know self-aid get on the phone and find out you know and it's easy enough to do there's you know we've got representatives of every you know not every but a broad brush of of uh deployments here so we we all know about it and there's you know vvss open arms now there's there's ample help out there and the, the white card is available now while you're serving so there's really no excuse to be sitting around and saying that help isn't available especially you know if you're a family, if you're a family member of a veteran out there and you're watching this, if you're sitting there and you're thinking that there's no help available for your son and daughter, trust me, you are wrong. And if the very if the loudmouth out there that thinks that there is no help available, then trust me, there is, and you're still wrong about it. And she will know who she's talking. I'm talking about as well. So, you know, get out there and get the help if you need it. It's there, and there's a lot of it available. You just got to be willing to ask for and put your hand up and go and get it.
1: Well said. Thanks, guys. I, uh, I know well, we put this together uh, fairly short notice and and the willingness and the eagerness, everyone jumped on straight away and said, yes, I want to be a part of this. Um, and I think that is that is part of our service history and, and the group of people that are here and, and what you've gone on to do post-service um, in your own lives for whatever it is. You're still trying to help people, still trying to connect people and still trying to give people a purpose. And I just want to – I really appreciate you guys all uh, coming on uh, and taking the time. Uh, to come through these issues. So thanks very much, guys, and uh, chat to you later. Yeah, cheers, mate. Thanks, boys. Thanks, mate. Thanks,
5: fellas. Cheers.